Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 6, Episode 22, presented by Marketile. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. For our very special guest interview on this episode, we are off to one of my favorite cities, been there about half a dozen times, Amsterdam, to chat with Vim Blau, Chief Digital Officer, IKEA Retail, the Inca Group. I feel like we've got uh, back-to-back episodes of these iconic mm-hmm. you know, brands that everybody's known for, for decades at this point. Uh, and uh, it's just a fun, a fun company to learn about. And uh, they're doing a lot of interesting things I, I wasn't so aware of yeah. all that they had up to. So it was fun to hear about that at the World Retail Congress and then to get yep. them on the mic to, uh, to unpack it, as the kids say. Yeah, and special thanks to the folks at uh, at uh, the Inca Group and IKEA because they uh, they introduced themselves and and uh, we didn't have the time and neither of us had the time to fit it in in person in Barcelona, but uh, we uh, we did the great follow up and and uh, it's a fantastic interview. And as you say, it's funny. They, I, I don't think we maybe we should tell people we intended this to happen, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you get right. I mean, we we've been planning this for years. This is the whole arc. It's kind of like the succession planning. You know, we just knew how exactly. we were going to land this. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get right into the news, or should I say, let's get the Allen keys out and assemble the retail news of the week for the people. Come on, these, <laughs> How much fun. time do you spend thinking about these these intros? Well, trying to scripts. catch me off guard. Yeah. <laughs> these scripts write themselves. Come on. Now we were talking off mic, and and uh, you know our typical uh, review of the news. We thought we'd start weaving in, though we kind of have for many of the episodes a bit of your predictions from the beginning of the year. And then there's a lot of predictions. We're probably not going to do a full predictions mid-year check, so to speak. But we thought it'd make a nice idea to, uh, you know, in the world of these things sometimes write themselves, to kind of integrate it in what we're talking about. So uh, there's a bunch of uh, results out and news, and it all fits kind of in your prediction of the disruptor reset. And and 22, as, as you said, it was a pretty rough year, and and remind the the folks what you said about twenty twenty three for the uh, the so called disruptors. Well, essentially, uh, it's that the the toughness, I guess, or rough road was going to continue at least for those that are not able to kind of right the ship, uh, which so far we're not seeing much of of that. But mm-hmm. but in particular, as we get into you know, really multiple years of this uh, kind of era of profitless prosperity. In other words, you know, growing, but not able to get on a path to profitability that we'd start to see some big changes. So changes could include some of the founding executives uh, Mm -hmm. getting, you know, leaving or getting kicked upstairs, lots of expense reduction to try to see if they can move towards profitability, a shift and a continuing shift, I should say, really for most of these brands from the strategy being kind of pure DTC to, doing things like more wholesale distribution, yep. uh, but also, which sort of plays against the wholesale thing or, or in concert with the wholesale thing, is maybe pulling back on their store expansion strategies or mm. maybe even getting acquired or maybe even going out of business if they can't figure things out. So a lot, a lot of possibilities, and you know, it's a big playing field to, <laughs> to sort out. So it's not going to be one thing in particular. Well, let's, uh, let's use that as a segue then. Let's go to the wobbly unicorn section of the podcast because we've got a few examples of what you've just been saying. And, and uh, the examples, uh, we, again, we've been talking about them for many, many episodes, but highlight a few of the examples that would kind of put an exclamation point on your thinking around this. 
Yeah, there are a lot of them. And as you said, we've, we've mentioned a bunch of these along the way, so I'll be really quick about it. But I think Allbirds is a great example of a company that has really struggled to get to profitability. And if anything, if anything things have been getting worse. So they have uh, slowed down their store opening pace. They've been starting to emphasize wholesale more. One of their founders, he's still at the company, but he's taken a more subordinate role. Um, we've got companies that have been acquired or maybe about to acquire. So ASOS, the online retailer, rumors that they're about to be acquired because they've mm-hmm. really been struggling of late. And then a company, I don't know how many people would know about Boxed. Um, mm-hmm. their, their CEO was speaking at a lot of conferences over the last few years, uh, basically kind of essentials in a uh, in a box <laughs> sent to you, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah you've kind of literally named the, anyway. Yes, yeah, yeah. very very on the on the nose kind of <laughs> name. Um, they've been struggling, and they actually just uh, announced that they're being liquidated. So there's mm. a example of a uh, I guess a wildly unicorn that that fell over or has expired. I don't know. This is very negative. We gotta try to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> make this a little bit more uplifting. Um, now let's let's transition from there into uh, some earnings. Let's start with Rent the Runway. Yeah, just, uh, I mean, part of the reason to connect this to the prediction is we did have two of the more prominent disruptor brands report their earnings this past week. Rent the Runway, I guess, on the positive news, they were struggling for a while getting Mm -hmm. the top Mm -hmm. line going, and they were losing subscribers. They've started to turn that around, so they had about an 11% sales increase. They had uh, growth in active subscribers. We don't hear that often, right? We don't hear that often in this group. Greatly improved their gross margin. Now, some of that was clearing out some some inventory, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did cut their net loss by about ten million dollars, so that's positive. However, that's what positive loss, looks, by the way, for many of these is they lose less, basically. Is correct. What I've, yes, been which we'll get to in a second. Another one, yeah. uh, but their net loss is still forty percent. Of sales. Now, one thing I should point out, which is it makes it difficult to compare to to brands, you know, sort of big established brands, as many people might know, most of these disruptor brands, there's a lot of money that goes into stock compensation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a big expense line on on a gap recording basis. So we have to look at the loss a little bit with a grain of salt. It's probably better to look at an adjusted EBITDA margin or or their cash flow. Now, on that basis, they have reduced their negative cash flow. <laughs> so also mm-hmm. going in the right direction. But still, there's a lot of cash going yeah. out the door. Uh, the company's stocks recovered uh, a little bit, been less bumpy. But uh, you know it's down like 80% since they went public about five years ago. So they got a lot of work to do there. Then the related one, just real quickly, um, kind of a similar story, big picture, uh, Stitch Fix except that they are having a hard time getting the top line moving. They had a 20% decrease year over year. Their active clients down, revenue per client down. Uh, But they have started to make some progress on cutting their losses. They did have positive cash flow. Some of that's some inventory adjustments, so that's Mm -hmm. maybe kind Mm -hmm. of a short-term thing. But again, another one of these disruptor brands that has seen their stock absolutely collapse. They're actually down over 90% in just the last two years, mm-hmm. but because they cut their losses, the stock bounced back a little bit. But anyway, you know, I guess, you know, it's still a picture of some progress, yeah, but both yeah. of these companies have a long way to go uh, to get to, to profitability. And, and, you know, the economy is probably not going to help them too much over the next six to 12 months. 
Well, in the case of Stitch Fix, what also probably, and we've talked about this in the pod, so I won't, won't dwell on it too much, the the um, the double tap on them, so to speak, is with less people uh, going into the office. They don't need five day a week of apparel, right? So that's right. got to be kind of a drag. And then, you know, just secondly, you uh, made the point that, you know, they probably tapped out on their addressable market. Like the addressable market just doesn't keep going up and up and up. There are only a certain number of people who want to, you know, consume or, or get product uh, in their subscription service. But anyway, we wish them, as always, we wish everyone the best of luck. Now, let's talk about the collapse of the unremarkable middle picking up steam. And that was a, a kind of a foundational element, uh, really building on a lot of your work. And, and it was one of the predictions. Now, you know, we don't have to go too, too far to think about this. There is some brighter points. But, uh, you know, when you think of what we've been talking about, uh, I don't know, JCPenney, we haven't talked about JCPenney actually in a little while. Uh, Macy's, um, you know, where do we think after a bit of a hiatus, can we say, for trouble during COVID, they actually probably benefited from COVID in a weird right. way? Um, where do you, yeah, you think- know, that, that's gone. Where do you think they are now? Yeah, I think that we, you know, we touched on this a little bit. I mean, a lot of this I, I cover, for people who've read my book, I mean, I cover the the collapse of the unremarkable middle is kind of a key theme, this idea sure. of the bifurcation, et cetera. We've talked about it a bunch of times, so I won't go into that. The The point here was was what you're saying, which there was a little bit of a pause due to some, you know, due to COVID, due to some other, yeah, other factors. Yeah, shopping dynamic and changes, this, yeah. Right, and then kind of this bounce back. Uh, that maybe masked really the underlying trends, but the underlying trends continue to be quite, quite poor. Mm-hmm. And what we're starting to see, and I've talked enough about the department stores, so I think I'll <laughs> skip that for now. Yeah, yeah. But but we're also continuing to see this more broadly. We're seeing store closings picking up pace. According to CoreSight, they're up sixty one percent year over year now. Bed Bath and Beyond accounts for a lot of those big chunk stores, of those, yeah, so sure. so it's a big chunk. So I think we would want to get a little bit broader sample before we draw too much from that. But everything from Joanna's stores, a craft store, to DSW. I mean, a lot of these brands that were kind of you know had an interesting niche maybe twenty years ago, but have really gotten more competition not only from the internet but from some specialty stores. You know, they're really struggling. A number of them are on. Uh, you know, bankruptcy risk alerts and those, those kinds of things. So we're not seeing much evidence of any kind of turnaround or any kind of sustained growth. Uh, so I think this continues to be a place to watch. I think we will see some more bankruptcy filings in the back half of the year. And I do think we will see some pretty large scale store closings uh, on the part of these retailers, the balance of the year. And, you know, frankly, probably a lot of it will occur after the Christmas holidays. So it doesn't quite make it into my, my prediction year, but uh, that's sort of a timing issue, I guess. Uh, let's talk about, uh, about uh, Nike and Macy's and, and what's happening in luxury that you're uh, picking up on uh, this week. Well, there's been some interesting stories about Nike deciding to go back to Macy's. And I've seen some stories talk about, you know, Nike's direct to consumer strategy is not working. And many of those stories state that Nike intended to completely get out of wholesale, which is 100% not the case. So the, one is just those stories where they, like Modern Retail had a story on that, that they're going back on their plans to go totally direct. Nike has never at least publicly never said stated. Yeah, they've never, never publicly that. stated that. Um, I can't, uh, Nike's a former client of mine, so I can't speak too much specifically, but based upon, and I haven't worked for them for a while, but 
I would be shocked if they ever intended to go fully direct. <laughs> Let's just say that. Uh, It'd be, be very but, uncharacteristic of them to do such a yes, you know, yes. And, and in fact, they've thing. said many things that make it clear that they understand a balance between between wholesale and direct to consumer. Having said that, uh, I think it is interesting that they are backtracking a little bit because they did exit Macy's and now they're going back in. And I do think that suggests number one that they need. Uh, that, you know, maybe there's some opportunity to, cause they're over inventoried. I think this is a little bit of kind of getting their nearer term performance back on track. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also think it suggests that yes, maybe they have concluded they went a little bit too far in the scheme of things, Nike at Macy's, because they're not, I think only going into a handful or not a handful, yeah. but a limited percentage of stores, not big in the scheme of, of Nike's overall strategy, yeah. nor is it going to be a, a game changer for, for Macy's. So there's kind of much ado about nothing, I think, to a certain degree. But mainly, I just wanted to kind of correct the record that Nike has mm. never said they wanted to completely get uh, get out of wholesale. And then, just really quickly on um, on luxury, you know, this kind of this narrative, and we touched on this a little bit an episode or two ago, that luxury is immune to economic down cycles. And my experience at Neiman Marcus is that the very very high end of luxury is pretty much immune. But the more accessible luxury segments, which, you know, probably accounts for 60 or 70% of the sales at retailers like Saks or Neiman Marcus, you know, that can be very much affected by economic down cycles. And the reason we have this story this week is that both Saks and Neiman's commented on their financial performance. Neither one of them are public companies, so we don't get mm-hmm. quite the level of detail, but they do share information with the, with the markets. And Saks, uh, and Saks is complicated now because they got Saks Fifth Avenue and Off Fifth and .com and stores and so. But but the net picture from Saks was that their business is pretty much down across the board in all four parts of that business. And then Neiman Marcus Group also uh, reported that their sales were down in the most recent quarter by nine percent. So that's a pretty significant decrease. My expectation mm-hmm. is that the top part of that business is flat to up. Uh, but the rest of the business is, is down more than double digits. So, and, you know, similarly, their profits uh, aren't great. Uh, one of the comments that um, the Neiman CEO uh, made was that in addition to just people pulling back on more discretionary spending, uh, they're also very clearly seeing that the high-end customer is shifting their spending towards travel in particular and more mm. experiences, which, you know, we've touched on that yep. as a broad yep. trend yep. for the industry. But uh, he said they're particularly seeing that with their customers. So I think that's something something to watch going forward. Let's end on the, uh, the value end of the equation. Let's talk about Walmart. And uh, I think sometimes we, we lose track of how big they are and what a, a percentage or two <laughs> yeah. means to Walmart. So comment on that compared to, you know, you just put it in some kind of comparison to folks, just so we continue to benchmark what uh, what big looks like. Yeah, well, I was I was reminded. This is probably going back twenty years ago. I was at a Harvard Business School conference event where one of the professors talked about how big Walmart was and how, at the time, Walmart was growing. You know, I don't know five or six percent a year. And he made the comment that if you think about five or six percent. Uh, growth on top of how big Walmart already is, again, 20 years ago. Yeah. He said, you know, they're growing a JCPenney, I don't know, he listed a bunch right. of you know, big brands uh, every year. And uh, and I was like, wow, yeah, I guess, you know, if you think, stop to think about it, that must be true. Well, sort of a similar thing came out this week uh, because Walmart, uh, in addition to reporting the growth 
that uh, they've been experiencing, but also because of some of their plans, as we talked about with Judith McKenna, the president mm-hmm. of Walmart International, to add mm-hmm. $100 billion uh, in incremental sales. Yeah, last year, Walmart grew by the equivalent of Dollar General's entire sales. Right. And uh, I know we have some people from outside the U.S. maybe not know Dollar General listening, but Dollar General is a huge dollar store. You might thousands by, of stores. By the yeah. name. Thousands and thousands. thousands I, think, I don't know. I don't even know how many. Yes. Many, 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 many thousands. Many, many, many stores. Of stores. And yeah, it just, uh, yeah, when you get to that scale, uh, it, it's pretty it's pretty incredible. But to think about how much market share, uh, I mean, some of this is inflation, of course, but I mean, to the extent that they are picking up real growth, uh, you know, that is just a lot of customers, a lot of transactions. I mean, the scale of it is uh, for companies like like Walmart, like Amazon, like Costco, like Target. It's, it's really quite extraordinary. Well, that's a wonderful segue you just created for us there uh, to our a little bit of a promo for our next upcoming episode, which is an exclusive interview with Jason Del Rey and his new book coming out, Winner Sells All, Amazon, Walmart, and the Battle for Our Wallets. So uh, I'm just halfway through the book. It's a really interesting book, and uh, we got uh, we got Jason on mic, so lots of great uh, insights and discussions to follow. Now, uh, just before we get to our excellent interview with Vim from IKEA, let's hear from our presenting sponsor. If you're a retailer hungry for a better way to gain useful insight on the impacts of your store layout, design, and strategic initiatives, you need to know Marketile. Marketile is an easy-to-use testing platform that emboldens great decisions, leading to reliable, scalable results. With Marketile, you can be confident in the outcome of your in-store pilot initiatives before rolling them out across your fleet. Validate your remarkable ideas with Marketile's in-store testing solution. The proof is in the testing. Learn more at Marketile.com. That's Marketile.com. Vim, welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast. How are you doing this afternoon? Yes, thank you. Great, uh, great to be here. Uh, yes, uh, doing really well. Sitting here in a uh, in an office uh, with a lot of people. We're celebrating uh, midsummer today, so that is uh, pretty exciting. Well, fantastic. Now, Steve and I had the opportunity to meet you in person. You stopped by. You were kind enough to stop by and say hi before we jumped on the mic today. Back in Barcelona at the World Retail Congress. Where are we finding you today? Where are you sitting today? Yeah, so today I'm in uh, I'm in Amsterdam. We have a uh, we have a hub here uh, in uh, in Amsterdam, where we actually have uh, quite some uh, digital folks uh, mm-hmm. over 500. We established mm-hmm. this hub uh, uh, almost uh, well, it's two years ago actually. So yeah. uh, this is now uh, yeah one of the digital hubs that we have around the globe. Fantastic! I love the city. I was there this time last year actually. What a wonderful city and a real hub for digital, right? It's a very advanced city in terms of uh, attracting a lot of talent i guess that's what attracted you to set up your hub as well yeah 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 100 yeah. of course the main reason to also establish one in amsterdam was uh, the availability uh, of fantastic digital talent here yeah yeah, yeah. not to, not to mention it's such a wonderful city so it's <laughs> nice when the t- it's nice when the two come together right well listen tell us a little bit about yourself your background and and the uh, the work you do at uh, at inca yeah, so uh, yeah, maybe a little bit of uh, background. Uh, as said, my name is Wim. Um, I work as uh, the Chief Digital Officer for Inca Group, 
uh, what we do is uh, we we run IKEA retail uh, amongst a few other things, but maybe we can come back uh, to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been uh, I've been with IKEA for uh, it's actually uh, quite remarkable, almost twenty one years. Wow! Um, I did right. not imagine that uh, when I joined uh, back in two thousand and two. Yeah, um, I'm Dutch. I grew up in the Netherlands. Um, I studied uh, logistics and economics. And, uh, you know, after a few years of uh, work experience, uh, I decided to apply uh, at IKEA. You know, first of all, it was a real fun place to shop. But I also heard very good things about, uh, you know, leadership, the culture and the values. Uh, So I applied. Um, I wanted to work on logistics because I have a logistics background. There was not a logistics uh, position available back then, but there was Mm -hmm. a really good uh, click and fit uh, between us. Uh, so I decided uh, to jump when they offered me another position that had nothing to do with logistics. <laughs> uh, it was store. It was a role in uh, store operations, uh, and I joined. I joined uh, six weeks uh, before uh, before we opened uh, a store in the Netherlands, uh, and it's been uh, amazing uh, ever since. I would say, right? I've Fantastic. worked in. I've worked in different stores. I've worked in country organizations in the Netherlands and in the UK. Um, I've worked in different group functions, uh, and now I have this uh, fantastic opportunity to uh, lead the digital uh, uh, developments uh, for uh, for Inca. So it's been really great. Fantastic. Well, a click and fit, I might say, just like the wonderful way your products go together. So I love the way you, uh, <laughs> I love the way you described it. Now, I wanted to touch on one thing, um, and you've I've described you as with Inca, and you joined IKEA. So. Help uh, the listeners understand the difference between those two things, because I, I don't think that's commonly known. No, I think it's. Uh, I think that's a, that's a fair question. Um, you know, we have um, we have quite some uh, companies uh, in the uh, in the total uh, IKEA ecosystem, mm-hmm. uh, but obviously there is only one brand, right? And I think that is uh, that is probably the most important thing uh, to remember for our customers. There is only one brand, and that is yeah. uh, and that is IKEA. Uh, but what the company that I work for um, is called Inca Inca Group. What we do, we uh, we have three core businesses, right? Uh, one of the core businesses is uh, Inca Investments. The other one is Inca Centers, and uh, by far the largest one is um, is uh, Inca Retail, um, okay. IKEA Retail. So what we do, we uh, we operate uh, the retail business, the stores, the online business. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are more companies um, like Inca, uh, mm-hmm. so there are, so we are a franchisee. Yeah. Um, but we are the largest one, right? So we have more than 90% of the total right. retail business uh, globally. Right. We run almost 500 stores in 31 countries. Uh, and then, of course, we have online uh, the app uh, and so on. That means that we are part of a franchise system, right? So there right. are uh, there are the franchisees. And then there is also the franchisor, uh, mm-hmm. which is called Inter-IKEA Systems. And uh, that is where we have to simplify Production, mm-hmm. product, uh, mm-hmm. uh, product development and distribution, uh, and that is also uh, the company that is responsible for the concept and concept development. And we work very closely together. Well, it's it, I would say it's wonderfully opaque. I guess you could say to consumers, <laughs> even folks in the trade, right, Steve? I mean, Steve, yeah. you and I had this had this idea when we were sitting in in Barcelona. We we're like, what is this? What is this Inca Group? And 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 you know, we've been we've been kicking around in retail a long time, so it's wonderfully. Uh, wonderfully just brand forward, blue box forward. Question for you around, and this this kind of came up as as a general overall theme, both when we talked to you in person and, and uh, just hearing you 
on the stage. This the evolution of of digital transformation that you described to us was was in a human centric way, and of course that got our attention. Talk about that a little bit. Uh, we are now on the uh, second version of our uh, of our digital strategy uh, in uh, in Inca. We have four pillars in that strategy, which is around customer experience, coworker experience digital DNA uh, in the company, but also making sure that we have a modern foundation. But in the core of the strategy, um, we have said, you know, human-centric technology. Um, and that, that means that we want it to be intuitive. We want it to be, when we think about data, uh, we want to do that in a responsible way. Also thinking about, and I also spoke about that uh, at World Retail Congress in uh, Barcelona, when we think about AI and all the uh, fantastic uh, opportunities and possibilities uh, that it gives, it also comes, in our opinion, with a responsibility to do that human-centric and to do it uh, and to do it in a responsible and in a good way. Uh, so that is uh, that is really how we want to work with the digital transformation and with our uh, and with our digital strategy. And that very closely links as well to uh, the vision of IKEA, because the vision of IKEA is to create a better everyday life for the many people. Uh, and of course, we do that by offering fantastic home furnishing products at low prices. Uh, but there is so much more to it, right? So how we do our business, how we work with uh, how we work with data, how we work to sustain sustainability, how we want to do things in a responsible way is very much linked to that vision. And that's also what we wanted to incorporate in the digital strategy with the human-centric technology. So could we talk about that a little bit deeply? I really um, enjoyed hearing your presentation at the World Retail Congress. And it's not necessarily to just try to give our listeners a, a sense of specifically uh, what you talked about at the event, but but so many of the themes you got into responsible automation, sustil, uh, sustainability, building agility into your operating model, I thought were were really fantastic. Could you could you maybe take those and give us a bit more of a sense of how you got there, uh, what's going on right now, and and really what you're aiming to achieve? Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the main theme of the speech in uh, Barcelona was about uh, responsible automation, uh, which is, of course, uh, one, but an important uh, angle to it, right? Because in, in what, what we're doing right now in the whole retail and digital transformation is a lot around, uh, you know, I shared examples such as drones that do, uh, that do uh, inventory checking, um, I shared some examples around things that you can do in the app, uh, but also automation. Uh, but also automation in our uh, in our stores uh, because our stores uh, more and more, uh, apart from um, um, stores, experience centers, uh, they also more and more uh, serve as fulfillment uh, as fulfillment units, um, and that's all great and important. Uh, and of course, it helps us to be to be more efficient. Uh, but at the same time, we also want to do that in a way where there is a win-win also for our coworkers, right? So the automation obviously comes into play um, in order to make life uh, easier for um, for our for our customer, uh, better for our customers, uh, easier for our coworkers. Uh, but at the same time, it is also a fantastic opportunity to create more value for the work for the work of our coworkers. Uh, so if you um, if you if it is an opportunity for us to upskill and reskill our coworkers, 
And by doing so, it really becomes a win-win, right? So because we have the automation, which, of course, helps us uh, in the end with better customer service and with our profitability, but at the same time, we also have an opportunity to make life uh, just easier and better for uh, for our coworkers. So that's one example around uh, responsible automation uh, that, I, that I shared. Your question, I think, was a bit broader, right? Because, and then... When we look at the, um, uh, the strategy for the totality of the IKEA companies, what we, want to, uh, what we want to achieve, we want to be more affordable, we want to be more accessible, but we also want to be more sustainable, so better for, uh, better for, uh, better for the planet and for the people. Uh, and that is, that is super high uh, on the agenda. You know, we, ha- we, have, we have really strong commitments around becoming climate positive by 2030, all right? which basically means that we want to reduce more greenhouse gas emissions than we create, even taking our growth into consideration. And we do that in many different ways, right? We focus on renewable energy. Um, we have uh, very strong commitments to do last mile deliveries uh, with, uh, with EV ve- vehicles. Uh, obviously, we help our customers with sustainable products, with sustainable products that help them to uh, to reduce uh, energy uh, consumption uh, and water consumption. Yeah, and there's actually a lot more uh, ongoing. <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, as I said. I found I found your discussion really really interesting. I'm wondering, I guess, both with respect to implementing automation, but also with some of the sustainability initiatives. You know, one of the things that uh, we hear a lot is is this concern that more automation, whether we're talking about robotics or generative AI or what have you, is going to eliminate a lot of jobs or that sustainability is really expensive to implement and therefore it's really a trade-off between kind of doing what's right for the world and doing what's right for shareholders and those those sort of things. Do you feel like those are false choices or, or how do you navigate th- that kind of thing? thought process when you move forward on these initiatives because obviously you're doing quite a lot in both regards so we did a um, we did a leadership uh, program uh, not so long ago with uh, uh, with many uh, with many uh, leaders uh, uh, in the inca system leadership in a new era is uh, was the name of the program uh, not the first version, by the way. We started with that um, uh, pre-pandemic, and I think it helped us a lot. Um, um, mainly in the context of, uh, I think, resilient, uh, resilient, and how you lead uh, through those uh, difficult times. Leadership uh, in a new era, 3.0, that we just did, uh, was very much about uh, adaptive leadership. Um, and one of the topics that we discussed was uh, how you deal with uh, polarities. Um, and I think these are typical examples uh, of polarities, right? So on, on one hand... Yes, you put in you put in automation, uh, but you want to do that in a, uh, at least we want to do that in a responsible way. So it is true, certain jobs will disappear, uh, but we are really convinced that many other jobs, right now and in the future, um, are going to be created. Um, and then we should also not forget that uh, we are still growing. Uh, that is one. Uh, we are developing our business, so that also comes uh, that also comes with new opportunities, and it is also we think an opportunity to have more co-workers with uh, with full-time contracts. Right? Uh, obviously, uh, in the retail business, there are a lot of part-time contracts, right. um, and that comes with issues, right? Because people often need a second or even a third job. Right? When you look at the retail business uh, in its totality. 
by doing this in a good way uh, with, cre- with the creation of new jobs that will be there and is super high on our agenda, we believe we will have the opportunity to provide more full-time jobs to people. Uh, so that is, uh, that is, that is I think, one, uh, one example that you were after. We strongly believe that it should not be the case that when you buy a sustainable product, that it's more expensive, right? Um, we strongly believe in the combination of affordability and sustainability. And we have, we have actually many good examples uh, in the business with fantastic sustainable products that also have a low price. Um, so it is possible, we believe, um, and it is uh, really high on the agenda to have more and more of those examples uh, for our, uh, for both our customers and for our coworkers, uh, because I think it's, first of all, the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it is also very clearly linked uh, to our vision uh, in order to create a better real life for the many people. It's a fantastic discussion around uh, refusing to make the traditional trade-offs, right, that you've just described. So it's it's really quite uh, quite uh, encouraging. Now, um, I, if we could step a little bit into the business side, uh, we what you know many things attract our attention about uh, about the brand, but we, there was some recent news about uh, some very significant uh, expansion plans, particularly here in the U.S. for the I guess you, we call them the big blue boxes, but also very interesting and a variety of small store formats some of which are uh, we've seen are in the country can you can you step out and give us a sense of where the expansion and the growth of the retail business is headed and is it a global strategy or is it a kind of market by market strategy yeah so um the 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 u.s investment uh, uh, as such right that we uh, that we announced not so, not so long ago mm-hmm. um is a u.s uh, 2.2 billion investment Mm-hmm. Um, and this is really about, um, let's call it key strategic retail and digital investments. Um, so it is about investing in the existing stores. It is about uh, opening uh, new store formats. Let's say the traditional uh, blue boxes, but also smaller formats. Mm-hmm. But we also want to uh, invest in uh, fulfillment and services mm-hmm. uh, because this is this needs to be a perfect combination of how uh, we can enable omnichannel retailing uh, in a good way. Uh, so all those different elements uh, of omnichannel retailing, um, including uh, new digital capabilities uh, to do orchestration for orders, for example, um, is all included in that investment uh, in the U.S. But it's not the only thing we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are um, there is there is a very strong um, plan to expand in India. Uh, we also recently announced that we are doing a uh, 1.2 billion uh, euro investment uh, in France. Wow. Um, so our expansion uh, agenda is uh, is quite big and aggressive, I would say. And then, um, and then I don't know if you uh, if you picked that up, but yesterday uh, we also announced that uh, that we did an uh, that we did another acquisition uh, in the USA. Um, oh. Around uh, a, a company man, company made for net. Uh, which is a uh, warehouse, a software, a software uh, provider, um, warehouse management uh, and fulfillment uh, management system, hmm. uh, and that is of course going to serve. Uh, it's going to help us in all countries, but definitely also in the USA. Um, so uh, yeah, we are uh, we are uh, continuously investing uh, in the expansion um, of, uh, of of the brand. That's super exciting. I'm curious if you could, and this is a little bit of a self-serving question in a way, because I, I was excited when I heard about some of your plans, because I think it very much fits 
with what I've been writing about and speaking about in terms of how retail strategy needs to evolve and being more hybrid, uh, both between physical and digital, but also thinking about a portfolio of different formats. My belief has been that there, you know, there was this era, I think, throughout, throughout most of retail in different countries that most retailers had kind of a one size fits all strategy. You know, they had their, whatever their particular box was, obviously people are quite familiar with the big Ikea box. And that was the thing you kind of kept stamping out. And I think it's become harder and harder somewhat by virtue of the way competitive strategies evolve somewhat, certainly because of e-commerce and, and just general trends, it's become harder and harder to kind of be a little bit of everything for everybody anymore. Uh, so one, I guess, you know, that seems to be part of what you're doing, but more, I'm curious, how did you get the team to the shift away from that kind of one size fits all strategy, uh, that's was so, you know, been so successful for so long to embrace this more hybrid, diverse, integrated, how, whatever you want to describe it approach. Can, can yeah. you give us a little, some insight into the, the process and just culturally how you got there? Well, first of all, uh, this is, of course, uh, very much uh, customer-led, right? Let's not uh, let's let's not let let's not ignore that, right? This is uh, you know the whole the whole retail disruption that has been uh, going on uh, for quite a while now is a combination of you know customers customer expectations and retail innovations, right? Because they go hand in hand, hand in hand. Because of retail innovations, uh, customers expect more and and so on and so on. Um, So then we have had a um, a traditional single channel cash and carry model for a very long time, right? And it has served us extremely well. Uh, You know, it's been been a true win-win, I think, for uh, for our customers uh, and for the company. Right with 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 the perspective that we had the furniture in our in in our big blue boxes, the customer would uh, would pick it themselves from the shelves or from the sales spaces uh, in our uh, in our market hall. They would bring it home themselves. They would they would assemble it themselves, uh, and because of that, uh, together we were saving money. Right? It's actually uh, you know our founder did an amazing job. I think uh, a fantastic formula that worked really well for a long time. Then of course the online uh, the online players uh, arrived and we were a bit late to that party. There was uh, definitely uh, some kind of disruption ongoing. Um, our uh, CEO Jesper uh, arrived uh, now soon six years ago. After doing a tour uh, around the globe, where he visited uh, many stores, many countries, had lots of conversations. Um, we together um, um, in the company wrote a new retail strategy. And in that retail strategy, one of the first slides was, we are going to change everything. And then it said, between brackets, almost. <laughs> um, and, we said, and, and the almost um, was really the reference to our fantastic range, our culture, and our values, because we strongly felt that that we should not change. But apart from that, the whole business model, how we would do retailing, how we would work with digital and many other topics, uh, we're all open uh, to change. And that's basically what we have been doing in the last uh, in the last five and a half years. So from only the big blue boxes, we established a digital organization uh, where we brought in a lot of new talent, online sales 
grew slowly until the pandemic, but we were already preparing our systems for more significant growth, um, which was uh, which was a good shout. Then we were also saying, okay, we have the traditional blue boxes, which sit a bit on the on the outskirts of the cities. Why don't we also open um, store formats closer to where the people live? Uh, and then we have an opportunity to repurpose those stores, which are still fantastic and big, and you can shop and you can have the experience. At the same time, we're also using them for fulfillment. Right. Uh, so, so that was the whole and 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 much more. Uh, so, I think the biggest uh, the biggest cultural shift here and the change, um, I would say, was taking in all those new competences, mainly uh, uh, mainly re- reflecting here on the people that started in the digital organization. Uh, because we had a history of many retailers that have been around for a long time. And in that cash and carry uh, uh, model, um, they have been uh, fantastic and still are. But all of a sudden, we were creating that blend between new competence, new experiences, uh, digital competence, um, and bringing the old and the new together. Um, and, uh, and I must say, uh, of course, that always comes uh, with a bit of pain and some hiccups. Uh, but I would say uh, where we are right now, uh, I'm really proud how we have done that. Uh, and I think we see, the, uh, we see the end result in the retail, in the, re- in the IKEA retail landscape, all the things that we, have, uh, that we have done, the expansion plans that we have, uh, but also in the results because the results are quite good. Well, it's it's super exciting, and I'm really uh, looking forward to seeing what else you do. When you when you were speaking, I was reminded of a book or a book a quotation I included in my book uh, from this U.S. general that says, uh, "If you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less." So, yes, a lot of times transformations can be quite quite painful, but I think uh, <laughs> the, the not changing part could be painful as as well so you know yes yes it's it's there of course there is some pain involved in that right and it should be like that uh, because otherwise you don't grow but it is also really fun right because uh, you know it's it's also you know one of the core values uh, that our founder um, had was renew and improve right and this this is so much connected to one of those core values that have been around for a long long time in the ikea business uh so it also works very really well and it fits really well you know i'd, I'd just add and then uh, steve i'll throw the mic back to you to bring us uh, home uh, is that uh, there's another example of a refusing to make the trade-off between uh, hard work and fun right yeah, it, that it yeah. can be both and then organizations can move forward with a very very positive uh, culture and and not make uh, whether they're false trade offs or just not accept that there's a trade off to be made. So, with that, Steve, back to you to uh, to bring us home. Well, I loved I loved the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us, Vim. I'm wondering if there's anything else just before we wrap up that we didn't get to that you wanted to mention or anything that we should be looking uh, looking forward to on the horizon. Well, you know, maybe may, maybe just one. Um, you know, we are uh, turning uh, we're turning eighty uh, this year uh, as IKEA, um, and um, I think we are still very young. And uh, I think it is uh, so. This this celebration uh, we call assembling a better future together. Uh, and I just wanted to mention that because I think it is a, a quite iconic uh, moment for us. 
uh, we of course are going to do uh, some uh, some great things uh, for our customers and for our co-workers uh, there is going to be um, uh, a special collection uh, where we bring back some uh, some icon products in uh, new colors and uh, and new materials um, and there will be more but i think it is just important this uh, assembling a better future together i really represents uh, uh, what we stand for because we have not done this alone, right? We have always done this in very close collaboration with customers, suppliers, uh, and many others. Um, and I, uh, I probably stop there. Okay, well, that, that's great. I, I love it. We look forward to everything else you're going to be doing, and congratulations on on that milestone. That's that's very exciting, and uh, hope to catch you again somewhere out in the world. But thanks for joining Michael and myself on the Remarkable Retail Podcast. Thank you. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, your favorite podcast platform, so you can catch up with all our great interviews, including Judith McKenna, President, International, Walmart. New episodes of Season 6, presented by our friends at Market Dial, will show up each and every Tuesday. And be sure and tell your friends and colleagues in the retail industry all about us. And I'm Steve Dennis, author of the best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. You can learn more about me, my consulting, and keynote speaking at stephenpdennis.com. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, consumer retail growth consultant, keynote speaker, and producer, and host of a series of retail trade podcasts, including this one. You can learn even more about me on LinkedIn, and you can see both of us at the Lead Innovation Summit in July, live on stage in New York with our friend of the pod, Simeon Siegel from BMO. Until then, safe travels, everyone.